Some of you might be familiar with a best-selling book by Rabbi Harold Kushner titled, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. The book is an examination of life. It's an analysis of why things happen and the role of God in all that happens. What you might not know is that Kushner wrote the book because his son was born with progeria, a disease where the body ages much faster than it should, and he died young. He was only 14 years old at the time. It shook Kushner to his core. Kushner had spent years pondering the subject of Job. In fact, Aaron was born when Kushner was a young doctoral student in Bible, contemplating a dissertation on the biblical character of Job. But Aaron's birth and the diagnosis that resulted uh, in his death actually deferred the challenge and the personal struggle was just too much. Aaron actually died in 1977. This book, Kushner's First, was published just four years later in 1981. On page three of the book, by the way, he writes, tragedies like this were supposed to happen to selfish, dishonest people whom I, as a rabbi, would then try to comfort by assuring them of God's forgiving love. How could it be happening to me, to my son, if what I believed about the world was true? The position Kushner came to at that time was that since suffering exists in the world, only three options are possible. One, that there is no God. Two, that God exists, but He's not all loving, therefore not all good. And three, that God exists, but is good, He's just not all powerful. And Kushner chose that third option, that God is good, but not all powerful. Now at that point in his life, he could not accept what he identified actually as a fourth explanation that God exists, that he is good, that he is all-powerful, but for reasons we can't fully comprehend, chooses to allow suffering. And so it is with many of us who believe that God is omnipotent, that he's all-powerful, who believe that God is all-loving. And yet we also struggle when we experience the death of a loved one and we ponder the question, why? I've shared with you, my sister is still struggling with that question regarding the death of her grandson who was only in his 20s at the time of his death. 30 years later, in 2012, Kushner published another book entitled The Book of Job, When Bad Things Happened to a Good Person. 30 years of ministry and life experience, his own confession that he had actually grown spiritually, all of these things had brought about some changes. 
He no longer believes that God is by nature limited in power like he did at the time of his first writing, but rather that God decided to self-limit himself and to allow our world to exist as it is with pain and suffering and evil as a correlative to freedom. So when natural disasters happen, it's not the doings of God. God isn't in the wind, the floods, and the fire, as Elijah found out in 1 Kings 9. Instead, God is in the gentle voice that helps us be resilient, that helps us respond and minister and help the needy. Now, I use this as my introduction because as we look back to Romans, Paul is in a dilemma. He's struggling. In fact, chapters 9, 10, and 11 all begin with a personal statement by Paul in which he identifies himself with the people of Israel and he expresses his profound concern for them. To him, Israel's unbelief is far more than just an intellectual problem. It's the question, why? We saw last week, from the beginning of chapter 9, the example he provides in terms of his sorrow and anguish that he feels over them. And chapter 10 will begin with his prayerful longing for their salvation. And then chapter 11, of his conviction that God has not rejected them. Last Sunday we saw what seemed to be conflicting circumstances. Paul began this ninth chapter by confessing that Jewish unbelief causes him not only anguish of heart, verses 1 to 3, but also it causes him perplexity of mind uh, because he asks himself how the people of Israel with the eight unique privileges that he listed could have rejected their own Messiah, verses 4 and 5. How can their apostasy be explained? You see, it's the question why. And so Paul's questions and answers proceed consecutively. Now I want to read together the first question he raises in his response, and then I will address the second and third. So, so let's go to God's Word. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the younger or the older will serve the younger. As it is written, 
Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. And God added his blessing to our reading of his word. The image. The image that I want you to focus on this morning is rather simple. It's a graphic design to illustrate that there is a process that one undertakes when doing failure analysis. Believe it or not, in 1982, I actually published an article in a textbook used in metallurgy with Dr. Alan Johnson, uh, Speed Engineering School in Louisville, Kentucky, the handbook of case histories and failure analysis. Uh, the, the article was titled, Examination of Broken Lamp Filaments Following a Rear End Vehicular Collision. Uh, it's pretty technical. Basically what it was was how Dr. Johnson and I went through a systematic analysis of the failure of the tungsten filament in the light bulbs of both vehicles to show that the high beams were not on on the striking vehicle and the flashers, emergency flashers and taillights were on on the vehicle that was being pushed and a car ran right into the back of it killing one of the kids that was in between pushing the car. We conducted a thorough and systematic examination of the failure of the tungsten filaments of the light bulbs because tungsten is a part of the brittle and flexible family of metals. And when a light bulb is not illuminated, when it's cold, it'll break in little pieces. You may have seen that in a light bulb that quit working and when you looked at it, all these little pieces or coils of the tungsten were there in the glass container. If it is hit while it is illuminated, it's a flexible metal and will distort all out of shape. A systematic examination was done. Now I want you to have this image in, in your mind as a backdrop as we look at Paul's questions and answers because Paul proceeds systematically and consecutively to determine if in fact God has somehow failed. And I don't know about you, but I hear that from time to time. God failed me. I used to be a part of a church. But God failed me at this point or that. And at first sight, because this is the first question that Paul raises, has God's word failed? And at first sight, it would appear that God's promise to Israel had in fact failed. Yet, the main theme of chapters 9 to 11 is God's faithfulness in his dealings with Israel. So how can this be? How can Paul speak of his kin kinsmen as children of wrath? Well, listen to me. Because this is really important. God had promised to bless them. But they had forfeited much of his blessing through their unbelief. Israel's failure was her own failure. It was not due to the failure of God's word. 
And the apparent paradox between verses 1 to 3 and 4 to 5, the Jewish unbelief on the one hand that caused Paul not only anguish of heart, but perplexity in his mind, that has a resolution. And that's where Paul goes with verse 6. And the conflict is resolved by seeing that according to what Paul writes here, there's not just one Israel, but two. Look again at the second half of verse 6. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, there has and always has been two Israels. And what Paul is saying is that those who are physically descended from Israel, Jacob, those who are ethnically Jewish on the one hand make up one Israel. But on the other hand, those who have been children of the promise, of God's promise, and Paul already made that distinction back in chapter 2 as we described those who were Jews outwardly, whose circumcision was in the body, and those who were Jews inwardly, who had received a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. Ethnic, physical Israel was chosen by God to play a primary role in His plan of redemption. And that entitled them to the eight blessings of chapter 9, verses 4 to 5. But in case you didn't notice... Those blessings did not include the guarantee of personal salvation. Go back and read them. Because it's important. You see, the failure to understand this has caused many to misunderstand how the issue of salvation figures into the discussion of the verses that are before us today. 6 to 29 of chapter 9. Most agree, and I do, that election, choosing, making decisions, is a key theme of this section. And it's agreed that Paul is stressing God's sovereign freedom to make distinctions and choose us however he pleases to do that. But I think it also needs to be understood that merely belonging to physical Israel was not in itself a guarantee of personal salvation. Nor that God would use ethnic Israel again in the future events leading up to the second coming. And you hear that all the time. Well, until the nation of Israel is restored or what about the restoration of Israel back in 19, I think it was 53, the year I was born? 48. 48, thank you. See, it, it hasn't locked in because it wasn't a major issue for me. Because Israel today as a nation, as a ethnic people, has nothing to do with God's plans. That is a misunderstanding of God's Word. And it's sad to say that there's sharp disagreement as to which parts of this chapter refer to God's election to service, which ethnic national Israel was, and which refer to His election to salvation. Has God's Word failed? Paul emphatically says no! 
And we saw in the first part of verse 6 that God's purposes and His promises have not failed. Basically, as I already stated, because there's two Israels. National ethnic Israel was unconditionally chosen by God to be a party to the covenant made with the fathers and thus to receive the blessings of verses 4 and 5. But this was an election and a call to service only. And yes, it was a matter of God's sovereign and unconditional choice with no requirement for saving faith on the part of any individual Israelite. Israel's founders were chosen apart from any decisions, any qualifications, any faith or works on their part. And God kept His promises to the nation and carried out His purposes for them. Not because of their unbelief, but in spite, excuse me, not because of their belief, but in spite of their unbelief. You see, the essence of Paul's answer in these verses is that being chosen for service is different from being chosen for salvation. The other Israel is composed of those individuals at that time within the ethnic body which do in fact have a saving faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Salvation is promised and given not to the nation as a whole but only to this spiritual Israel which in a sense is the true Israel spoken of back in chapter 2. They are the redeemed remnant that you'll often hear and read about in Scripture. The fact that God has withheld salvation from the majority of Jews is not a violation of His covenant with them or that covenant as such did not, because that covenant as such didn't include the promise of automatic salvation based on ethnic heritage alone. Listen to me. You cannot be saved because of the faith of your parents. And what's even more painful is that your children will not automatically be saved because you are a trusting and loyal believer. The point is that this lostness of Paul's kinsmen does not negate God's promises because his original choice of the founders of Israel had nothing to do with their works, their character, their merits, their faith, or salvation status in general. It was simply his sovereign will to use Israel rather than the alternatives. In other words, Isaac and Jacob were chosen even though Ishmael and Esau, who were also Jewish, were not chosen. And the purpose for which he chose them was such that they didn't have to personally be saved to carry the purpose out. God could and did choose them just as they were. And the same is true for the entire nation of Israel that sprang from their loins. God intended to use them for his service whether or not they believed and were saved. Thus, there is no conflict between verses 1 and 3 and verses 4 to 5. And that brings us to the second question. Does this mean that somehow God is not fair? That He is somehow unjust? 
In verses verses 14 to 18, Paul specifically raises a problem of fairness that some are bound to see in such a divine choice. Doesn't it seem unjust for God to choose people for service in this way? Shouldn't those people have the right to volunteer or at least consent? And if they're going to be conscripted into service, as it were, shouldn't they at least be rewarded with salvation? Is it right for a loving, all-powerful God to allow pain? To allow eternal loss? That was Kushner's question. And in response, Paul simply declares that God has the right to choose whomever He wills to use for His purposes, whether or not they are saved. And once again, we need to remember that election was for service, not for salvation. What is predestined scripturally is not what individuals will be saved and what will, who will be lost. Calvin was not right. What was predetermined was the way, the plan, the process that would all take place. For example, in the encounter between Moses and Egypt, the mercy and compassion of which Moses spoke is not saving grace, but it's God's election and appointment of a person or a nation to have the privilege of serving Him. And that such a person does not have to be saved to serve God's redemptive purposes is perfectly illustrated by Pharaoh. God chose Pharaoh for a vital role in His plan, just as many years he would, later He would choose Cyrus in terms of the release from exile. But God knew at the same time that Pharaoh would have a hardening of heart in order for the purpose and that role to be fulfilled. In like manner, God chose the nation of Israel for His grand redemptive purpose. And He used them for it even though most individual Jews, like Pharaoh, were hardened. And they've rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And only a remnant that we know of as Messianic Jews will be saved. So in his examination of whether or not God failed, Paul continues his failure analysis by addressing the question as to whether or not God should blame us. And to answer that question... Paul returns to the original distinction that was set forth back in verse 6. The distinction between national Israel as a whole that was used for service and the spiritual Israel existing within that are blessed with salvation. Does God have a right to make that distinction? In verse 19, the objection is put into the mouths of those Israelites who are lost as they try to blame God for their lost state. They say, if God's orchestrating this whole thing, how can He hold us responsible and condemn us for our unbelief? Hasn't God made us this way? And Paul's primary answer at this point is that the lost person, specifically in this case the unbelieving Jew, 
really doesn't have a right to complain to God at all. Because God is in fact sovereign. He has in fact uh, uh, by decree created each of us from a single lump of clay. He created Israel, verse 21. <coughs> Excuse me. And in his plan and with his clay he, like a potter, can do with it what he wants. Since it's his to begin with by right of creation, it's also his right to divide it as he chooses and to make different kinds of vessels from it. Now some of those vessels will end up being vessels of wrath and under the curse of verse 3. But others are, according to Paul, vessels of mercy that will be saved. But the election has nothing to do with salvation. The election has to do with service. And those vessels of mercy are the remnant of which the prophet spoke. The true believers. The spiritual Israel. To which, in this church age, we are added as true believers. Gentiles being grafted in. And also, by the way, the Jews being grafted back in. Because they are no longer the chosen tree. Now I know the main section does, although it comes to a close at this point, it really doesn't answer and resolve the issue of divine faithfulness that's raised in verses 1 to 5. In particular, the section does not raise the question as to the basis or the conditions upon which God distinguishes the remnant from the larger group of Israels according to the flesh. It simply establishes the fact that God has made that distinction between the two Israels, only one of which is going to be saved. And that's where we can look to the challenge. Paul has shown clearly that ethnic Israel's role of service had no essential connection with personal salvation. Salvation, the divine distinguishing that separates the saved from the lost, is conditioned upon your and my freedom to choose either to accept or reject the saving promises of God which will be the point of the next section of Romans. So where does that leave you and I? I think we need to find comfort in the fact that God's promises concerning Israel have not failed. The Messiah, Jesus the Son of God, did in fact come from the lineage of David. And he was lifted up. Jesus was enthroned on the cross and he ascended into heaven and, listen to me, Daniel 7, Daniel 7 predicted that one like a human would be seen coming with the clouds and he came to the ancient one. Go look it up. Daniel 7 is not predicting Jesus coming to earth. 
And I know that's a big part of the rapture theology. It says he is coming where? To the ancient of days. Who is the ancient of days in scripture? God. So where is he going on the clouds? Not to earth. He's going to heaven. Daniel's prediction is about the ascension. When the apostles saw God, God as Son, Jesus the Son, lifted up into the clouds and being taken away to the Ancient of Days. You see, ethnic Israel fulfilled the service to which she was elected. And we need to find comfort because there are really two Israels. And we can be adopted into the Israel that's within the children of faith by accepting the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, as our Lord and as our Savior. Let's pray. Father God, It's so easy for those who desire to make money to publish all kinds of things in books, to put all things into movies, such as the left behind stuff, and not be true to your word. Help us to be diligent students of your word so that we can understand as Paul wrote here pretty densely, pretty confusingly that God has not failed. You haven't failed. We can't blame you because you fulfilled the purpose of Israel by bringing your son, the Messiah, and all of those promises were in fact fulfilled. Now help us to make sure that those that we know and love don't rest on the faith of their fathers or whatever else they might point to, but to accept your Son as their Lord and Savior. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Our hymn of invitation is the song I know who holds tomorrow. Let me share a little snippet about this song real quickly. My friend Paul Kongsai, one of their communities that they have witnessed to where one of the larger churches is, has recently been attacked by the non-Christian atheist forces because the total community is Christian. Trying to weed out supposed enemy militia. Paul shared with me how one time when he was younger and ministering, he went to a church and he was met there by a commander of the forces with a handgun aimed right at him and said, you will not continue and you will not preach here in this church. 
Paul turned around and went home. He said, the next morning I decided, no, I am going to preach in that church. And he said, I got up. And as I walked the miles back to that church, I prayed and sang this song. And he sang this song for our church over in Illinois. I don't know who holds tomorrow. I mean, I, I don't know about tomorrow, but I know who holds my hand. Let's stand on this thing.
Diane just shared that she has a beautiful chair. If anybody's in need of a chair, it almost looks like a throne with whatever that is. But she has a beautiful chair here. Come and see her. I saw I just looked at that and I was playing the band. That was sexy. Right. 
Bob and Diane, the couple back here, they have, I mean, that Diane said, we're really glad to found this church yeah. and you and the teaching because in just a couple of weeks, you've already cleared up several of the questions that we have had that were being brought to us that we just didn't see that that was, that was wrong. Yeah, it puts them on a good path for research, too. Counselor, I think he said, uh, but why would somebody with a doctorate want to be in a small little church? Is this what you want to do? That's exactly what I told you. That's where you want to just where I'm happy. We got a call from a big church in Kearney, Nebraska, yeah. several years back. And I didn't pursue it. They called me, and, and I sent them back a letter after thinking about it. Uh, and all of the lure, yeah. I sent them back a letter saying, you know, you could be teaching at university level. You could be anywhere. I appreciate your offer, but we're, this is where I'm going to be. If you're happy with the family church, this is free. Yeah. Love you guys. Love you, Jess. I love you. See you later. See you next week. Yeah. All right. Yeah. It's finally warming up. Yeah. Yeah, it looks that way. Guess what? We're going to get another bronze. Oh, I'm sure. We will. I'm prepared. <laughs> I have your stuff all stacked up here, but I can't get that and the communion stuff. You said what, babe? I have all your stuff stacked there. I just can't get that and oh, this. Sure.